The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Well, we are are continuing in our series, The Story, uh, which which what we've been doing is we're we're spending the whole year going through the narrative of the Bible. And as we're doing this, I I hope you see that as as Christians, when when we dig into this book, when we look into God's Word, that we're not just looking at this thing that's sort of a, a list of, of rules or a list of moral obligations or a code of ethics that we subscribe to, but, but actually it's the story of the creator God who redeemed his people through his son Jesus Christ and will one day restore all things through him and that we as his people now are actually invited into that. We're brought into that story. And it's pretty amazing. And if you've been with us uh, for the, the past few weeks, you've seen that it's actually quite a long story, right? It's, it's got, it's got a, a deep history to it. And so the point we're at today is, is this. God has uh, created a nation, the nation of Israel, that's going to show the world who he is. That they're his people that are going to show the ancient world who he is. But unfortunately, we talked about this last week, uh, that nation's split in half, north and south. And, and you have in the north uh, what's still called Israel, and then in the south was Judah. And they've had two different kings in the north and south kingdom, and these kings have been terrible. Just a string of kings, one after another, leading the people further away from the true God, leading the people further away from their true mission. And in our text for today, I don't know if you caught this, but, but the first guy uh, that, that we see is this guy Ahab, and he calls the nation of Israel together, and he's, he's the king of the northern part of Israel. And it says earlier in, the, in this book of the Bible, 1 Kings, that Ahab is the worst king Israel's ever had. That he's led people further away from God than anyone else. And, and he's done that in particular through marrying a woman who is outside the, the Israelite community. Uh, her name was Jezebel. So if you've ever heard, you know, we're in the South, you ever heard someone called a godless Jezebel? That's, that's where it's from, okay? Uh, and so, so her name's Jezebel, and, and, and he leads the entire nation to start worshiping Baal. Uh, and that's the state-sponsored religion is this fake God. So what we have in this situation is, is the nation of Israel, the people that are supposed to show the world who the true God is, who the creator of the universe is, who's the one who, who knows them and cares about them, the people that are supposed to show the world the living God are all bowing down to a fake one. They're all bowing down to a statue. And so in our text for today, God sends in his boy Elijah. And, and Elijah says, I'm going to challenge the worship of this false God. I'm going to bring us back in line to worship the true God. Uh, and I've got to tell you, I told you before I read it, this is like one of my favorite stories in the Bible, like, like hands down, because it's so awesome. And there's two reasons for it. Like one, I don't know if you caught it when we read it, but it's got everything in it, right? There's action, there's comedy, there's blood and guts. I mean, it is like, it has got, I can't wait for the film to come out. Like it's, it's got everything, everything in it. Uh, but the second, I mean, there's fire, right? Okay, barbecue. So the second reason I, I love this story is, is because I've, I've actually, I've never preached on it before. Um, but one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life, probably one of my favorite sermons in my entire life, was on this text. Uh, but it was, it was preached to me uh, by my roommate my senior year of college, okay? And I, I want to tell you that story, give you a little bit of background. So one of my roommates my senior year of college, his name was Micah. And, uh, and Micah, you know, you have that friend who's like crazy, you know, we all have that friend, right? So that's him, okay? Uh, and he was, he was a multimedia major. He, he, right now, he, he makes films for a living. That's what he does. And um, at any rate, but let me just give you an example of, of how he's kind of crazy. So I've only punched one person in the face in my entire life. Um, hope that's all right with you. Um, and, and it was him, okay? Punched him in the face. And when I did, immediately his nose started gushing blood. And his reaction to it was to start cracking up and give me a big hug. So, right, and then he just bled all over our bathroom and then just left it there for our other roommate to find the next day. 
Okay, so like that's, that's the guy we're talking about, all right? So just get that picture in your head. So anyways, he gets a, a gig to go make a film for a, a group of orphanages in, in southern India that, that started up after the tsunami hit there in 2004. And so he got a gig to go make a film about these orphanages, and, and I got to go along with him uh, with a team of other people to do uh, some benevolence ministry and, and share the gospel in some of the villages uh, where these orphanages were. Um, and so I'm there with a team of people doing that, and, and he's making this film. And, and we're there for a couple weeks, and, and at basically the end of our journey, our last stop was this little tiny seminary uh, at just the southern tip of India. And, and we go to this little tiny seminary, and, and right as we get there, seminary where they, they train pastors, not cemetery where they bury dead people, uh, although it's not that different. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so we, go to this, we go to this seminary where they, they train pastors. It's a tiny one, maybe about 30 guys there. And we show up, and, and our group's there, and they say, oh, you guys are here. You're just in time for chapel. Oh, which one of you is preaching? I was like, what? Like, we had no idea this was going to happen. And, and honestly, we, we had myself and, and two other guys that were on their way to being pastors. We had, like, a retired guy. And so we totally thought, well, it'll be one of us, and we'll just, you know, wing it and make it happen. And my roommate, Micah, goes, it's me. It's me. So crazy guy, normally behind the camera for a reason, is like, no, I'm preaching to these guys who are studying to be pastors. So, so he gets up there, and we have no idea what he's going to do. And he tells this story, and he tells the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the one we just read. And he's just like super animated about it, and he, he goes on and on. It was just, it was kind of captivating. It was amazing. And he just kept emphasizing this, though. He just kept saying, it's 450 to 1. 450 prophets of Baal to one man of God. 450 to 1. And he just kept going again and again and again. And then he got quiet was incredibly rare for him. And, and he said, I've been in your country for a couple weeks now. And uh, I've noticed there's a lot, a lot of Hindu temples. And there's almost no churches here. He says, it's 450 to 1. And you guys are Elijah. He said, and just like Elijah showed the entire nation of Israel who the true God was, you guys are going to show the entire nation of Israel who the true God is. Drops the mic. Right? And I was like, this is the same guy who like a week ago bought a bird for the sole purpose of, of pranking a girl and putting it in her closet. Like, where did this come from? Like, who, where is this coming from? But ever since that day, like, I've loved this story. Man, I love this story. Like, his point. It's 450 to 1, and God uses the one to show an entire nation who he is. To turn an entire nation's hearts back to him. That that's what he can do. And so that's led me to pray for my, my brothers and sisters in India. But it's also led me to think about our culture and where we're at. What does that look like for us? Sure, we have a lot more church buildings than Hindu temples. There's no doubt about that. But can we look at our culture? Can we look at our world around us where we live? Can we look at our own lives and say, you know what? The God of the Bible is, is really the God that we're worshiping. The God of the Bible is really one that's, that's permeating uh, what we live, what we live by, what we live for. I, I don't think any of us would say that. I don't think we'd say that's, that's the dominant theme in, in our culture's life is, is how God's revealed himself in Scripture. There's other gods, there's other truths, there's other things that people live for. And so it may not be 450 to 1 in our circumstance, but pluralism, this existence of multiple truths in our world, is alive and well in our culture. And it was alive and well for Elijah. And we see that he faces pluralism, but he responds in faith and he sees the sign of God. All right, so that's kind of going to be our outline today is the presence of pluralism, the response of faith, and the sign of God. We see the presence of pluralism, 
Response of faith, sign of God. All right? So, so let's go. What's the presence of pluralism? What's that look like for us? First of all, look with me at verses 20 through 23. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, every kid's favorite mountain. Um, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. All right, so King Ahab, he calls all the people of Israel together, all the prophets of the two big gods in town. He says, all right, prophets of Baal in the blue corner, prophet of God, Elijah, you're in the red corner. Let's go, keep it clean, above the waist, right? And, and so Elijah says, he stands up and it's his turn. He just says to the whole nation of Israel, he says, hey, quit limping between two options. You, you think you can worship both Baal and, and our true God, Yahweh, as he's revealed himself to us. But your attempt to co-mingle them is just silly. It doesn't make sense to worship both of them. They can't both be true. It doesn't work that way. And so he says, you're blind to your own pluralism in your life. And we see the people are, right? Because in their response, I don't know if you caught this the last time, it says the, the people did not answer him a word. They're like, what? wait, you mean we can't worship both Baal and God? Like, and he's like, first commandment, bro. No other gods before me. You can't, can't worship both. Oh, okay, okay. Now, that may seem silly to us, but let me just show you a little bit of, of what I think that looks like in our culture. Um, the, the presence of pluralism in our culture. So, so I got to, uh, to hear Ed Stetzer speak uh, a while back. And, and he's a guy, he's kind of a, I don't know, church planting, missional thinking guru uh, in the States here. And, um, and he talked about kind of the, the state of religion in the U.S. And, and he runs a, a sociological research group called Lifeway. And, and he shared kind of rough numbers of, of what we're looking at. And he said, so if you were to ask most people uh, what their religious affiliation is in the United States, he says, to this day, w- most people would say they're Christians. They got, it's, it's like roughly 75% would say they're Christians. So you got 25% that wouldn't, 75% to say they wouldn't. But he says, if you look closer at those numbers, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing what you see, pretty eye-opening. He says, okay, so you got 25% of people that don't identify as Christians, they're atheist, agnostic, maybe other world religions, whatever it is, so that's 25%. He goes, then your next 25%, if you would, are what he calls cultural Christians. And these are people that he says uh, identify as Christians uh, because that's what they've been told by their culture they are, right? And so they're, they're filling out a survey on a census or something, and it says, uh, you know, what's your religious preference? And they may have never been to church, never heard of Jesus, never read the Bible, I mean, literally know nothing about the Christian faith, but, but they come across a survey and it says, uh, what religion are you? And they know they believe in a God, and they know, well, I, I don't think I'm Muslim or Jewish, so I guess I'll circle Christian, you know, because America, right? So it's a, your baseball, mom's apple pie, and circling Christian on the census. So, so that's kind of this group. Um, and then he says the next group he calls congregational Christians. And he says those are nearly identical to cultural Christians, um, but the only difference is they, they have some tie to a congregation. They don't necessarily go there ever, uh, but their family maybe grew up in this denomination or in this church. And they say, oh, yeah, I, I'm part of that. But they, they really have no actual connection to it or no real active faith life in there. All right. And then your final one is, is what he calls, um, what's the word? Convictional Christians. And that's, that's folks who, who engage their faith, who live it out, who pursue Jesus and are in church on Sundays, that sort of thing. Kind of what we would traditionally think of as an as a active Christian. Okay? And so he says, here's what's happening in our culture. Is, is you have the 25% that wouldn't identify as Christians, cultural Christians, congregational Christians, convictional Christians. He says, for a long time, what he calls the mushy middle, 
uh, was getting its, its morals, its cues, its worldview, these sorts of things from like the church as we know it, convictional Christians this way. He says what we're seeing shift now is that values, worldviews, morals, all that is now coming from this 25% as opposed to this 25%. Does that make sense? Okay, have you seen that? Probably, yes, okay. So that's, that's what he's saying. And so just to give you a little hint as to where we're at, where we live. So in Williamson County, uh, on an average Sunday, there's about 23% of people that live in Williamson County uh, that are part of a worshiping community. Okay, so that's about right here. And, and of course, I know, you know, it's not the, the ultimate gauge of someone's spirituality, whether or not they're in church on Sunday, but for an overall view of the spiritual health of our community, it's not a bad one to look at. It's not a bad one for us to, to assess things by. Someone says, okay, Gabe, fine. It was really boring. We made it through. Uh, commitment to the Christian faith is waning, but I thought you said it was, it was pluralism. Like, you know, for the Israelites, it was God and Baal. Are you saying there's another God at work here, that there's the, the true God and there's another one? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Uh, there's a book that came out in 2005 called Soul Searching, and it's done by a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he explored the faith lives of American teenagers. And he did thousands of interviews and surveys, and he had this to say about the belief of modern American teenagers. What appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. And he, he calls this belief moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, we'll break that down in a second, but that's what he calls it, moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, and he goes on to say, if you're thinking like, well, that's just the kids. First of all, let me say this. This book came out in 2005. It's going to date some of you. I graduated high school in 2004. Uh, I turned 30 this year, okay? So, so we're, we're growing up. Um, and, but, but Smith also goes on to say this. He says, most American youth faithfully mirror the aspirations, lifestyles, practices, and problems of the adult world into which they are being socialized. In these ways, adolescence may actually serve as a very accurate barometer of the condition of the culture and institutions of our larger society. And so Smith says, hey, I've talked to all these kids, I've done all this research, and what I'm seeing is, is this religion that's coming up is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, sure, there's a God, he's good, he wants me to be good, and he wants me to feel good too. And that's it. Now, of course, there's elements of truth in all that, right? There's elements of truth in all that. But, but if that is the extent of God... I think we'd all agree that it is a woefully insufficient explanation of the God of the Bible. It's a woefully insufficient picture that we see painted in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a different God. It really is. And it is everywhere in our culture. You know this, right? It's, it's the air we breathe. And so, so what's our response to that? What's the response to pluralism? Well, we see in Elijah what the response of faith is. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. He's talking to the people of Israel, and he says this, verse 23. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. 
All right, and so what's the response of faith in the presence of pluralism? Is it, is it to hide? Is it to, to duck and cover, to pretend it doesn't exist, to just blindly believe what we've been taught either by the church or by the culture? No, man, what does Elijah do here? He puts it to the test. He says, listen, these, these can't both be true. They, they just can't coexist. There's one God who's true and there's one God who isn't. Let's figure out what it is. Let's test it. See, the response of faith in the presence of pluralism is to find out what's actually true. Now, given his cultural context and the gravity of his situation and the fact that, I don't know, he's Elijah, um, his test is going to be a lot more exciting than ours, okay? We're not lighting a bull on fire today. It's not going to happen. Um, but the principle remains. The principle remains that the response of, of faith in the presence of pluralism is to explore what's actually true. Explore what's actually true. And someone says, well, what does that look like? Uh, you said lighting bowls is, is out. We're not lighting bowls on fire. So, 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 so how do we explore what's actually true? We think, right? We, we ask questions. We say, what, what lines up best with reality? What best explains who we are and what we're doing and why we exist and, and why we act the way we do and why there's purpose to our lives or there isn't? We, we ask questions and we find answers. See, I think faith is waning in our culture and this belief in moralistic therapeutic God is not a result of people thinking critically. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think people have said, well, I just, this just doesn't make sense. I reject it. I think it's actually the opposite. It's a lack of thinking critically. It's a lack of thought. Ours is a culture that says, hey, don't waste your time with those big questions. Don't waste your time with the big questions about who we are and why we're here and where we came from and where we're going and what's right and what's wrong. Don't waste your time with that. That's for the philosophers. That's for the theologians. That's for these yahoos up on stage. No, no, no. What's important is your standard of living. What's important is your career. What's important is your appearance. Focus on those things. Just go with your gut for all the big questions. Just kind of roll with that, right? YOLO. Nonsense, right? It's nonsense. Like, I am more and more convinced that keeping, articulating, and living the Christian faith must involve a deep life of the mind. It must involve you thinking it through and seeing it as actually true, as being actually true of the way things are. You say, well, how do you do that, Gabe? How do you do that? If you don't mind, let me share with you a little bit of my journey. Uh, I hope it will be helpful. I don't know. It may or may not be, but I hope it is. Um, so C.S. Lewis, the, the great author, uh, philosopher, uh, referred to himself as the most reluctant convert to Christianity in all of England. And when I'm feeling exceptionally arrogant, uh, I like to think of myself as the most reluctant person to stay a Christian in all of America. Okay? Uh, here's, here's why. My, my natural predisposition, my natural way of, of doing things is to stick it to the man, right? Like, I just want to burn the institution down and, like, whatever I can, like, let's just go crazy, power to the people, right? And so, so that's kind of my natural thing is to challenge the status quo, to rebel against whatever's put in front of me. And, and so I was brought up as a pastor's kid, so guess what was put in front of me, right? Uh, and and so, so my natural thing, from, from a young age, I thought, well, Dad's all about God and church and all this stuff. Count me out. Sounds crazy. And I remember, man, even in like sixth grade, uh, my older sister and I, we'd have these like secret meetings. Uh, we wouldn't tell anyone in the family about them. And, and we'd be like, hey, sometimes I'm not sure if God is real. And she'd be like, me too. And we're like, all right, let's go eat dinner. You know, like that was, that was our secret meeting of, of uh, the skeptics 
Casper's home united. Anyways, and so, so, so we would do that. And, uh, and so that's sixth grade. And then I remember when I was 14, but like Jesus still kind of keeping hold of me, keeping his ties on me. And I was 14. I remember I had my first theological debate with my mom. And, and I was like, Mom, listen, Jesus can, can be your savior and he can be all these things if you want. But I'm just telling you, I look at Jesus and, and I think he's an anarchist. I think, I think he's with me, and he wants to, to burn this mother down, and so, like, he's, he's with me, and I was like, ah, that doesn't seem right, Gabe, and so, so anyway, so, so that was me in 14, and then I, I get to college, and I'm like, I, I shared a little bit of this on uh, Good Friday, but, but I, as I studied philosophy, as I had friends from different faiths, as I got in deep conversations with them, I'd have these moments, I'm already studying to be a pastor at this stage in the game, but I'd have these moments of deep existential angst, and I'd just be like, God, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what's true. I don't know if this is real. And every single time that happened, God would find a way to pull me in. Like, I just consistently said, I don't want this to be true. I, I don't want to believe what I was raised in. I don't want to believe what's been forced down my throat since I was born. It's not cool. It's not. I don't want it to be true. And every single time, God just kept pulling me in pulling me in. He says, oh, you got questions, Gabe? You think you're the first person? You're the first person to ever have doubts? Ask your questions. Read a book. Talk to someone. Figure it out. Work through this stuff. It's as if God was saying, your questions don't scare me, Gabe. Denying me is like denying gravity. All right, good luck. Saying, I'm real. I'm present. I'm true. Come to me. Talk to me. You see, in the face of pluralism, our response, the response of faith is to test what's true. In other words, to think. And listen, I know every comment section on the internet says that us Christians are just idiots who don't think. And we just blindly believe. I'm telling you, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, use your brain. Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That you may test and see what is true. Think. And as you do that, look for the sign of God. Look for the sign of God. See, what we've seen so far is Elijah recognizes the, the pluralism of his culture. And he responds in faith. He says, hey, let's see what's actually true. Let's lay it out there. He says, uh, prophets of Baal, you guys try and get Baal to respond. And, and I love that. I don't know if you guys caught that in the story, but it's so awesome. So the prophets of Baal, they, you know, they put their bull on the altar and they're dancing around saying, Baal, you got to hear us. Baal, you got to hear us. And did you catch when Elijah like makes fun of him? And he's totally talking smack. And, and he just says, uh, you know, oh, maybe he's asleep. Oh, and then he, he even says, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Uh, I was reading a commentary and it, and it says under there, it just goes, body sarcasm. And then it like resumes on. So I, it's the only time I've ever heard the word body. But anyways, uh, and, and so he, he makes fun of him. Baal, of course, doesn't show up. Uh, big surprise. And, and then Elijah just goes up and he says, God, I know you're real. I know you're there. But I just want these people to see you. I want these people's hearts to be turned back to you. So God, would you just show up? Just show us that you're here. We know you're here. But we just show it so these people's hearts would turn back to you. Boom. Fire falls from the sky. Barbecue. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, what does that look like for us? God gives a very clear sign of who he is. He gives a very clear sign of his presence to his people. You say, well, what does that look like for us? Well, there's a a story in Matthew 16 uh, where Jesus' enemies come up to him and they say, hey, Jesus, if, if you really are who you say you are, 
If you really are the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, why don't you do a sign for us? Why don't you show us? Why don't you pull a little magic trick? And Jesus says, I'm not playing that game with you. That's not how I work. He says, you guys actually aren't going to get a sign. He says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Sign of Jonah. Say, what is that? Well, earlier Jesus has said, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man, he, will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So what's the sign he's talking about? His death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection. You see, Jesus says, you want a sign. What's the sign of God for us? It's Easter. It's that he rose. That he actually rose from the dead. You see, as we think about what's true in the presence of pluralism, we look at the sign of God. We look at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know whether or not you can trust Jesus' words? Look at the resurrection. He says, I said I was going to die and rise again. And guess what? I did it. I think you can listen to me. It actually happened. See, it's a historical reality for us. It's a sign that has to be dealt with. Either it's the most clever lie in history, or it's true and it absolutely changes everything in your life. And see, man, some of you this morning, you've been kind of sitting on the fence of Jesus and God and church and whatever, and you sort of engage the world with a spiritual apathy. And you can keep doing that if you want, but just understand that it doesn't make sense and that you're missing out on engaging the world with the God of the universe who is living and moving and breathing right now. I mean, look at how the, the people of Israel respond to the sign of God in verse 39. It says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. See, an experience with the resurrected Jesus, when, when you see him, when you meet him, and you see that he's the one who went to the cross for your sins. When you see that he's the one that paid the price for your sins so that you might be made right with God. And that he rose again on Easter morning, that as you trust in him, you have the hope of eternal life with God. When you see that, when you experience that with him, when that sinks into the center of your being, when you see the sign of God in the person of Jesus Christ, it only makes sense that you, like the children of Israel, fall before him and cry, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let's talk to him now. Lord God, help us to see what is true. Lord, help us to think with the minds you've given us Help us to look at your world, to look at your word, to look at your son Jesus and, and see what's true, Lord. And as we experience you, as we experience your truth, we pray that you'd shape us more and more into the image of your son, that we might follow after you. And God, I also pray for my friends, those who are maybe on the fence with you or trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out. God, I pray that they would dig deep, that they would ask questions, that they would take this seriously. And that ultimately, Lord, they'd come to know Jesus and come to follow after him and the, the grace that you have for us in him. I pray this all in his name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.